All right, welcome back to this week's episode of the Equipped Bruised Tired podcast. I'm here with uh, Bryce uh, Crabshack, Crab Shark. I don't know what it is. Any, any of those variations is fine. <laughs> There's probably a few more. As, as always. Um, and uh, we're just about a week since we launched our first episode. Uh-huh. Uh, it was kind of like a interesting week to see the reactions. We weren't really sure where this would go and people would uh, kind of, with no one being able to lift, generally speaking, and not be able to lift even more equipped than anything, really. Um, yeah. It was kind of interesting to see what people would kind of think about an equipped podcast this time. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully it just gets people more excited for when things open back up and everybody can stuff themselves back into excessively tight suits. Yeah. I think it's been maybe a good time because people seem to have a lot of time on their hands to kill. So um, mm-hmm. I see a lot of uh, every day I open Instagram to see someone else starting a podcast, I think. So yeah, um, I yeah. saw Joe, Joe Cap started one yeah. uh, this past week. So um, yeah. yeah, it's been, I don't know, it's been good. We've had pretty good uh, comments and reactions and yeah. a few emails. So yeah, people seem to like it so far. Um, so how's your, how's your raw training going there, Ryan? Uh, still pretty terrible. Uh, but I'm not doing squats, <laughs> squat sets of 25 anymore. That's a uh, win. I, I, I finished that at a uh, hundred kilos. Um, hey. So three by 25 at a hundred kilos. Check that off the bucket list. And I think the worst part of it was I was using like the transformer bar and the safety squat setting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, once we got over 80 kilos, it started like really crushed me and I couldn't breathe very well. So like by the time I got to like 17, 18 reps, I started getting dizzy and I'm like, like pushing out. the bar up, trying to get breaths and stuff. So I think I saw some Instagram footage of your dog checking to make sure that you were still breathing. <laughs> yeah. No, she just like leaned against my stomach and laid down. I couldn't <laughs> breathe. I kept trying to push her away. She kept pushing back into me. I'm like, no, What's man, that? I'm trying to Ryan breathe. Ryan fell down in the squat rack? <laughs> um, no, it's, it's so now I'm down to 15s and it's much better, much more enjoyable. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, other than that, yeah, raw benching. That's kind of what we're focusing on right now. So like it's going to do some... Well, though. Yeah, do some singles and see if I can chase a, a raw PB. Um, things are feeling pretty good, so we'll see how that goes in a few weeks. What about you? Um, yeah, starting pretty light with a lot of the raw stuff. Doing a lot of like stuff that I'm terrible at, like <laughs> spending time in bottom positions. Yeah, I saw pause squats. Uh, pause squats. I, I was doing five count bench today. Oh, man. Yeah, my pause pause work is just so humbling. It's Do you use like, a metronome like Mike? No, I just try to count really slow. <laughs> I don't know. If, I was like, I was thinking about it today because there's a guy on our Discord that I constantly give shit for one and a half count pausing his three counts. And uh, <laughs> he then subsequently gives me shit for whatever. Uh, he didn't think my, my pauses were up to par on my pause squats. But um, I thought about it today. But then I was like, ah, I'm not going to go find a metronome and set it to the like tick on the second and i just i'll I'll just count slow yeah but again it was like yeah i'll probably do you know like 155 for a triple here and i got up to like 135 and was like "Mm, okay um yeah no maybe 140 would be good yeah five seconds is a long time it is it feels like forever yeah 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 i used to do um uh like 505 tempo conventional deadlifts and uh i did them for a few weeks then someone's like those aren't five seconds. So I got the metronome, metronome app out and that was so much worse. I was not doing five <laughs> seconds. <laughs> yeah. It was terrible. Yeah. I think there's a definitely a difference between five count and five seconds. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so do we want to maybe dive into the, the email that we got? Talk sure, about that yeah. for a sec. Yep. Um, so we got an email this week from a listener. We'll call him Josh since his name is Josh. Uh, he asked, (laughs) uh, he asked, uh, if we had any tips for, uh, either programming or ways to break in a suit or a shirt, uh, for a newer lifter. So what do you, what do you kind of think about that? Um, so we did a video on equipped programming on the Calgary barbell channel. Um, I mean, I'll I'll plug that here. If you want to go check that out, we talked a little bit about some of the programming considerations link in the corner. I don't know if I can do that, but (laughs) We'll annotate it somewhere. <laughs> we'll try that. Or it'll be in some description yeah, somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I like definitely getting some higher intensity, lower rep stuff in so you can get a little bit closer to comp form. Uh, but I also think that there's value in 
you know, sets of five in full equipment um, and, and, and the like. So getting some volume in is like anything else, getting some practice in the equipment. And if you don't sit down all the way in your squats, tough luck, not a big deal. You know, <laughs> if you don't touch your chest, as long as you're not posting it on Instagram and people blow you up for it, but uh, like just do some partial reps to get used to the suit. I think that's a good way to kind of wear the equipment or break the equipment in a little bit. Um, as well as, you know, obviously a good way to kind of grease that groove, learn the skill, um, and a lot of that kind of stuff in terms of getting into the equipment. Uh, I think honestly, just like get into it a few times. Um, I think usually by the second time I squeeze myself into a squat suit, it's much more usable than that first time. You know, it, it might take me twice to actually successfully get into a piece of equipment. So that's, that's not unusual. Try to have somebody around in case you get stuck in it and you need help. But uh, what do you think, Ryan? Yeah, like, so especially for bench shirts, I like to use uh, like descending board sets. So, you know, maybe do like singles to like a three, two, one board or two singles, like do one set of like three board, three board, two board, two board, two board, one board sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Just so you can kind of like keep working that groove in as you get, um, a little more weight in your hands and also the shirt kind of breaks in and gets kind of set where it needs to be. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's what I always usually do get people to do for shirts, suits. Like it's just a matter of, you're probably not gonna get depth, but just try and maintain the position and don't let it like push your knees forward or anything like that. Bend you over, just, uh, go down as far as you can and do a few reps there. One thing I noticed about lifting equipped is, Pretty early on, I noticed the more that my deadlift hurt, the better position I was in, like skin, skin wise, the more that the right. suit dug in and bind it up and, and really like fought against me, the better my deadlifts usually went. So I think there's definitely something to that, but that's yeah, maybe a like whole other topic. Those deadlift suits are, yeah, it's the one thing with deadlift suits is it's so tough because if they're properly tight, really to start, it's mm-hmm. so hard to get to the bar. Right. So yeah. It's hard to. So, in that case, you might even want to do some block poles or something like that. But a new piece of gear, like any new piece of gear, is going to stretch out quite a bit the first two, three, four, half dozen uses. Yeah. So, big time. um, Be prepared to to have it really suck the first time, maybe the first couple of times, but it should kind of form fit to you better over time. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I think uh, think that makes sense. Doing some reps with you know, nothing shatteringly heavy weights, but, uh, just to, to kind of break things in, but also trying to push the, the heavier weights so you can kind of get to that full range or close to the full range is good. Yeah. I think for a beginner, probably starting around like 90 to hundred percent of your raw one RM is you know, oh, somewhere, yeah. somewhere yeah. in that neighborhood might be a good way to start approaching it. And even in the suit, like don't like squatting, don't worry about putting knee wraps on, just leave your sleeves on and, and just kind of break the suit in for, for a bit. Sure. You don't need to kind yeah. of worry about wrapping your knees too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so if you have any questions, uh, if you have any questions yeah. for us, you can email us at, uh, equippedbruisetired at gmail.com. Um, we'll kind of try and cover some of those that come up, uh, on weekly episodes as we do our intros, uh, yeah. or leave a comment in, uh, on YouTube or I guess just on YouTube really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, yeah or, uh, or put it in a five-star review somewhere. Yeah. Perfect. And, uh, and we'll probably see that because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. we like those, we check those. Um, yeah. So, and, and we'll, we'll try to give like a little bit of a, a spiel of, I guess, where we're at each episode and, you know, how things are progressing in the, in the world of lifting as we get through all this craziness, as well as try to field the questions and, and give some training advice before we get into our interviews. Um, so I mean, this week's guest, uh, probably comes as no surprise to anyone. And if, honestly, if you're lifting, sorry, listening to an equipped lifting podcast, you probably already know who Blaine Sumner is. Um, for those of you who came in here just for a bit of downtime, he's one of the greatest equipped lifters of, of all time. Um, Blaine first competed in the IPF in the 2012, uh, the raw Pacific invitational where he was the first classic lifter to squat 400, um, set both the squat and total records there and then moved on to the classic powerlifting cup in Sweden, which was just before classic worlds became a thing in 2013. Um, Blaine came in there, put on a show in the super heavyweights and won by almost 50 kilos. Um, Blaine's accomplishments in, in classic lifting are, are pretty impressive, but honestly are, are greatly overshadowed by his equipped lifting resume here. 
Um, he's the only lifter in the IPF to squat over 500 kilos. Just let that sink in for a second. 500 kilos. Uh, he's benched over 400 kilos in a three-lift meet uh, and 455 in a bench-only meet and to almost total 1,300 kilos. Uh, pretty gargantuan numbers there. Uh, Blaine has held the squat, bench, and total world records since 2016. And last but not least, we wanted to make sure we got this in here. As far as we're aware, he has drank the most chicken out of any person on the planet to date. So <laughs> uh, we hope you all enjoy our interview with Blaine, and uh, we'll toss it over there. See everybody next week. So uh, I guess we'll we'll start off with, I mean, there's probably a lot of people who are now all of a sudden in a situation like you train in all the time, Blaine, um, you know, home gym, that kind of stuff. Uh, there's There's been a lot of people who, who train equipped by themselves, but not many who have done the things that you've done, obviously, uh, equipped training alone. So I guess to start off with, what do you, how do you think training alone is, has helped or hindered your training over the years? Like, have you always trained alone? Um, I haven't always trained alone. I got my start at Rocky Mountain Lifting Club and got my feet wet in powerlifting and the equipment there. But for the last, I don't know, 10 plus years, probably now, close to 10 years, I've pretty much trained alone. Um, I think there's pros and cons. So the pros of it, it's forced me to become much more in tune with every fine detail of my training and my gear. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have someone there that has more experience than me saying, do this with your straps or do this with your shirt, do this. I had to, you know, I kind of got my feet wet and then sort of went off on my own and restarted from ground zero, like teaching myself the equipment from the ground up, trying, trying things I hadn't heard of, trying thing, different things I've heard people talk about. So that's the, the good part of training alone is um, I kind of had to build my foundation, my philosophy of how to use gear uh, from myself. And then the right. cons, um, I mean, it, it's tough. Obviously, um, I, I got to the point where I could comfortably get my bench shirt on myself, get my squat suit on, wrap my knees myself. It wasn't fun or pleasant, um, but I was able to. Um, I'd say now with the weight that I'm handling, the biggest hang-up would be doing handoffs um, in the bench shirt. Mm -hmm. um, so pros and cons. And obviously, if you're doing it by yourself, you've got to have some sort of safety safety mechanism. Right. So it sounds like, so when you transitioned from training with people, there was, there was a big change in your training philosophy or like you explored a lot of different stuff when you, when you sort of left that environment, what was that like? And, and what did you, I guess, learn through that process? Yeah. So both philosophy and, um, I mean gear, but, uh, so I'm an, I'm an engineer by trade. So I love numbers. I love spreadsheets. I love <laughs> overanalyzing things. Perfect. Um, so I just I love building spreadsheets with percentages or tank reps and building out a training plan and plugging in different numbers and okay using a projected max of this what would this week look like what would this progression look like what would this wave look like um, so I actually I really enjoyed that part I I, I love that part of it um, numbers and analyzing stuff so um, worked with a couple of different coaches talked to a lot of people um, tried different parts and pieces from people that I respected and kind of meshed it into my, my own ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess going back to the whole like training alone thing, now I don't know that many people are necessarily trying to get into gear right now, but uh, if somebody was trying to get into gear and, and they had like a home gym set up, um, do you, do you have any like tips or advice for people who are trying to get into gear maybe for the first time alone or don't have the like, crew or or sort of hands-on guidance like a, a starting point or some some general advice for a beginner who doesn't have anybody yeah the crappy thing is right now in today's day and age i wouldn't recommend anybody try to learn gear on their own mm -hmm. without help um, okay in i mean in today's day and age with all the the craziness going on right um, but it, you know if you had people around that could spot or help um there's tons there. Well, there's, there's a lot of resources online. I'm mean, actually Calgary Bar Barbell probably puts out the best stuff about 
Um, <laughs> How much did you pay for that? A, that was not a too much of a softball, right? <laughs> but, uh, I mean, gear's tough. I'd say for sure you probably need to hire a coach, if not a coach, finding someone in person um, that maybe has had experience with gear before. And the biggest thing I'd say is keep an open mind. There's uh, the stuff that I've learned and developed my own philosophies with gear is completely counterintuitive to kind of the, the common knowledge that everyone does with gear. So yeah, a very good answer, but at finding resources online, an online coach or someone in person that, that somewhat knows a little bit about gear, I'd say is kind of a necessary part. Right. I think you touched on an interesting thing there in terms of like how counterintuitive your approach is. So why, why do you think your, your approach is counterintuitive and maybe what are some of those uh, sort of counterpoints that you've come up with and discovered that, that work for yourself, maybe not for everybody, but um, what are some of those things and, and sort of like, how did you get there? Sure. So I can't reveal all the secrets, right? Those that's are, fair. That's fair. Yeah, no. For some. <laughs> we'll um, we'll, we'll but, hide some of this recording somewhere. <laughs> you know, the I, premium I version. Say, when uh, I'll I'll use the I'll use the squat suit for example. When everyone learns the squat suit, when I learn the squat suit is you want the legs super tight, you want the strap super tight, um, you want the the legs and crotch pulled way high up. Um, so that's kind of how I started. And then that just over time by myself, training by myself, I was like, okay, what, what happens if I wear this, like the suit legs lower? Or what happens if I wear the straps like really high on my, my trap close to my neck versus what happens if I, have, if I wear them down closer to the shoulder? Um, and, you know, the bench shirt, one of the things people always talk about is like common knowledge is like jacking, jacking the collar way down and like latching that belt super tight. Like that's how you jack a shirt. So I'm not, I'm not going to go into the details on uh, my full philosophy, but it's, it's right, things like fair. that where things people do things the way they do because that's how it's always been done with gear. So I would just say experimenting. Like you put a piece of gear on and powerlifting world says you need to do it one way. Well, try it the other way and see what happens. I yeah. think um, a lot of times people just do stuff, like I said, because that's how it's always been done and not necessarily thinking – outside the box. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Even just in training in general, um, you know, people are kind of like, well, you know, they, everybody else does it this way. So must be the way to do it. But it's interesting what you can, uh, I guess, come up with when you throw some of that to the wayside and try your own stuff out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So circling back to training alone and, and the dangers and risks inherent to that in 2018, you had uh, a pretty, harrowing accident, uh, missing a re-rack on a squat, uh, and you did suffer a pretty bad injury to the forearm. Um, how did, how do you think that experience kind of shaped the way you approach your training, uh, going forward and what kind of changes did you kind of make to your training or the equipment you trained on, uh, mm -hmm. to try and minimize the risks? Um, you know, it, it was for sure the most traumatic thing that's happened to me training wise, um, it's, it's tough because I had, I had to let it affect me. I mean, it's, it was a life changing ordeal, but yeah. I couldn't let it get in my head too much because if I start to get scared or nervous or unsure about handling that kind of weight, then I'm not going to be handling that kind of weight anymore. I, I would say the biggest training thing that I changed is I used to feel like I had to be religious about squatting over a thousand pounds every week. Um, like, I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call 999 pounds a working set. I gotta be at like a thousand three, a thousand twenty-five, a thousand forty-seven. So I was religious about that, and I think I've been able to back away from that. Um, so like, I a lot of times I'll use my squat suit with no knee wraps. Um, you know, I have I have more trouble with the suit than the wraps. So, um, and maybe instead of going over a thousand pounds every single week. Now maybe I do it once every four weeks, and then as I get closer to a meet, every two or three weeks. So training-wise, that's the biggest one. And then uh, equipment-wise, if, if they've seen the Instagram stuff, I had this giant contraption made that rides above me on my lifts, and it's got these mechanisms that attach to the bar where for doing a single lift, it's supposed to act as like an auto spot system. So it allows me to travel down free, 
And as soon as the bar reverses and starts going up, if something were to happen, the bar will uh, not come down any further. If, if whether I just can miss a lift or if something crazy happens, um, shouldn't allow the bar to go down any further. So have you actually, has, have you actually had to use that system? So it hasn't, it hasn't had to save me, but we did, we did load test it with 1130 or 1235 pounds. No, maybe it was 1135. Um, you know, there has been times where like on a bench press, a heavy shirted bench, I'm trying to get it back in the rack and I think I'm there, but one side didn't get in. And so I'm able to like, okay, that side didn't get in and either lift it back in myself or someone come over and help. Right. But the spotting system has like held it to the point where it's not coming down. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So following back to that accident, like I know that was, uh, I think about September of 2018. So like eight weeks later you competed in Sweden at the, the world championships and even placed second in Sweden. Like how did you, how did you get your head right? How did you, how did you, come back from that. I mean, even just the physical recovery in eight weeks of, of that kind of injury is, is incredible, but to actually be able to get back under that kind of weight and, and attack it like you do. Right. How did, how did yeah, you kind of do that? It's a, it's a pretty wild story and the timing of it. It was really bad timing because I had a very, I had a very long training cycle leading up to worlds you know, from our nationals to worlds. We have a pretty long block and my goal for that block was to increase my raw strength quite a bit. So I actually had stayed out of the gear far more than I ever had before squats, benches, and deadlifts. And right about the time where I was getting back into gear is when I had that accident happen. So I went a very long training cycle, totally out of gear, the accident happens. And then, um, I only have a few weeks really to, to get ready and gear for worlds. Um, I was extremely fortunate because, the cut didn't actually sever any tendons or ligaments. It, it cut right down to them, and I think it nicked them. Well, when we went to the ER, um, it was gushed wide open, and the, the doctor and my wife had me move my fingers, and they were watching the tendons to make sure that, <laughs> that everything was still intact. So it cut down to them, but it didn't actually cut them. So functionally, I didn't really lose anything in my hand or my arm, but the wound um, – the wound itself, the the doctor told me to take, I think it was like six weeks off and keep it compressed um, to not do anything. He's, he he knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that. I wasn't going to follow it. The, <laughs> the risk was um, any sort of pump to my arm could, could uh, tear the stitches and open the wound again. Um, so in terms of mentally trying to get ready for Worlds in such a short period of time, I just... You know, I convinced myself that I hadn't had hardly any training cycle, but I didn't have like a 16-week prep for this meet. I had been training my whole life for this meet. So even though I um, wasn't in gear and things went completely haywire at the last minute, just told myself, like, I don't, I don't need that. I've been getting ready for situations and meets like this for 10 years now. And so that's kind of what pulled me through and allowed me to still have a decent meet. So what tools and techniques did you kind of use to keep training when you couldn't, I assume you couldn't put your hands on a regular squat bar or I assume bench with the bar? Yep. And I don't, it was probably four, three or four weeks that I took off from benching. Um, I used the transformer bar or safety squat style bar um, to keep my squats going which, uh, you know, allowed me to not have any too much stress on my arms. So that, that was a big, a big help. And then, um, just kind of one of my philosophies or things I've had to live by through most of my career is figuring out how to work around injuries. So it's kind of the engineer side of me, like isolating and figuring out what I'm not able to do. Like, where's the pain coming from and work everything around that entire movement as much as possible. So, um, you know, like just because I couldn't use a certain part of my arm, I could do cables or bands like around the inside of my elbow and do flies like that. Um, ways to do triceps without having to, to grip something, uh, things like that. Damn, cool. 
Um, I guess that, that leads really nicely into a line of questioning that's that's a little bit um, near and dear to my heart, and that's that's going to be the hip injuries. Now, I know you've had some labrum uh, issues, um, and that I think at this point, are you doing much raw squatting as a result of those? It's really tough. It depends on it depends on the day, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. When it's bad, it's like an eight out of ten bad. Yeah, but then usually I can put the squat suit on, even just straps down, and on a bad day, instead of an eight out of ten, it might drop it to a three or four out of ten, which makes it a lot more manageable. Um, and so the the suit bottoms help a lot. Uh, I try to push my raw squats and training as much as possible, and, and sometimes for whatever reason, I'll have bouts of four or five weeks where I can push my raw squats pretty hard. Right. And not too much pain, um, but at some point it always comes back to bite me. Right. So was that something that you figured out kind of early on, or was that like did that sort of click into your head right away when you injured your hip? Like, oh, maybe a suit will help. Was that was that part of the intent of of getting into equipment, or was this something that you kind of figured out down the road, or how did all that come about? Um, so when I tore my hip labrums, I was still at a point in my career where I was competing raw and equipped at the same time and actually okay. strongly, strongly favored raw. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, just throughout training started to figure out like, especially when it first happened, like, wow, I can not do anything raw because of the pain, but I can put this suit on and I can, I can get through a training session. Cool. Yeah. I've, I've actually noticed some similar things with my hip and, and a lot of the times, like for me, I think it was a big mental thing being able to, you know, continue to push that while not being able to do raw, I think helped keep me interested in lifting a little bit. Um, did you find some of that same experience between raw and equipped and then like kind of start leaning the other direction with things or are you still, you know, planning or hoping that, that raw will, you know, you'll be able to kind of get back to that someday. Yeah. Um, I mean the simplicity of raw is, is appealing sometimes. Um, and I, I don't have any goals or aspirations to say to do a meet. Um, you know, I, I could probably find a time where I could string together four or five weeks of pretty painful training. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's definitely helped with it. And I don't know if this is specific to me because of how I tore the hip labrums was extremely specific to doing a raw squat. Um, but even without the suit bottoms, I found that if I kind of change up one variable, a lot of times it'll relieve a lot of pain. So mm. that might mean like a, a closer stance and more upright or even like a heeled shoe. Um, for whatever reason, belt squats didn't didn't hurt it too much. So I found that like changing one variable away from competition raw squat did relieve some pain. Yeah, cool. So I know like when you started lifting, you started lifting with um, uh, Dan Godreau at Rocky Mountain Cl- Lifting Club. Uh, and you were kind of, I seen some really old videos of you squatting like 1,100 pounds, uh, a few inches high maybe, uh, back in, in the Rocky Mountain Lifting Club uh, time. So you kind of started equipped. Um, but uh, were there anyone else that you trained with back then that kind of got you going into lifting? It was, it, was it Dan or were you kind of lifting before that and kind of got introduced to him? So I was lifting in high school for football. Um, my parents were both involved in powerlifting before I was born. So I had to ask them questions. I wasn't really exposed to it. When I was a senior in high school, my dad looked up um, powerlifting gyms in the area. And it was actually about an, over an hour to Rocky Mountain Lifting Club. But Rocky Mountain Lifting Club and Dan is where I first got exposed to powerlifting and competitions and, and for sure the, the gear side of it. And outside of that, um, I haven't I haven't really been involved too much with others that know about equipped lifting, with the exception of uh, Mike Womack. When I was living in Oklahoma City, I would drive about three and a half hours one way to go learn some bench press shirt stuff from him. So I want to circle back to the uh, your parents both powerlifted. Um, my dad did, and my mom was a high school PE weights teacher for about 30 years. Okay. So like, do you get the old back in my day stories from your dad? <laughs> you know, I, actually, no. <laughs> did he, uh, no. did he compete at a high level lifting or was it, uh, 
he competed at the high high state level. Um, I don't know that he ever did the national meet. He did he did a 450 pound raw bench in the in the competition, which when I was growing up, I thought that was huge. And still, I still think that's big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I never knew about that. Um, so you have any? Uh, when you kind of got started, did you have any like role models besides Dan, or was it you just kind of a local? You kind of look to your local club, or whether you're looking to people at the time, maybe like uh, Brian Sider or something like that, you kind of looked up to? So, yeah, when I first got exposed to it, the numbers that Dan was lifting, he was still um, highly competitive on the open level, on the three lift at that time. And I, the numbers he was doing, and I would see him doing the gym, I thought was just ridiculous. And then as I got more exposed to powerlifting, yeah, Brian Siders was, I mean, he was the man at the time. It was He was worlds above anyone else. And then um, I'd say someone that I've looked up to for a very long time would be Brad Gillingham too. So Brad's been a, I've loved watching his career and looking back on it. He's a very good dude. How's the ratio of you squatting a thousand pounds to him pulling 800 pounds? Cause I know he's done that in, in meets like over and over again. Are you guys, is there, is there a count there? Is there a ticker? I don't know my count of thousand pound raw squats and meats, but I'm sure it's less than his 800 pound deadlifts and meats. Right. In, uh, in your time, like kind of training over the years, uh, have you noticed that there are things that kind of used to work or that you used to rely on in your training or really, you know, uh, get a, get a lot out of, or a lot of carryover out of that don't really work anymore. Are there, are there things like that? And if so, what have you found, you know, maybe used to work or doesn't anymore or didn't work and does now. Yeah. So, so I'd say the thing that I know used to work for a very long time was I, for the very early part of my powerlifting, just followed a straight linear periodization method. Um, and it, it worked for a long time and it started to not work as much. And I think it probably has more to do with my my training experience and my training years um, rather than linear periodization not working as much anymore. So uh, linear periodization is still a staple in pretty much all my training, um, but there's other variables that go into the waves as well. Um, the, the engineer side of me really likes linear periodization because it's very structured. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. You can put it on a graph with weeks and intensity and volume and everything works like it should. So, uh, right. um, but I have gotten away from like true textbook linear periodization. Yeah. If only the, the graph like overlaid the human body's response well enough that that's just like followed that same curve. Yeah. Um, so what, what have you kind of, how have you adapted that system to make it work for you now? Because you, you, you said you still kind of follow it, but not so much. Like what are the, what are the modifications or what are the changes you've made to that previous system? So I, I would say that the frequency of needing to handle heavy weight and heavy lower reps has to be meshed in with um, linear periodization. So on a very high level, kind of how I do it is my priority one lifts, which I would consider like your competition movements. Um, I do those with higher, higher weight, lower reps almost year round. So okay. you no more than three reps. And they, those still kind of linear periodize where um, I'll go heavy for a few weeks and then drop down. Heavy for a few weeks and drop down. But that overall picture stays much higher weight, much lower reps, lower volume. But then what I call my priority two or three movements, which would be one or two variables removed from your competition lift. Um, I do more of a classic linear periodization there where over a 12-week training cycle might start with eight reps for a period and then six reps. Um, yeah. What's the, what's the highest number of reps you've done in a full suit and wraps? Ah. Have you done any like high, high rep stuff in your suit and wraps? No, I, no. no. I mean, once I'm above, once I'm above probably 40%, I just do singles. Okay. <laughs> I just, I've gotten interesting reactions from people and I, I, I've gotten the impression that that's pretty much just blasphemous to a lot of people. Uh, so I was just, just curious is all. So my, my theory on that, I'm not saying there's not a place for it. You know, maybe if you were using loose gear or getting used to gear for the first time, right. but a high level competitive equip lifter, my theory on it is 
if you're able to do more than for me one but if you're able to do three to five reps to depth or touching your chest in competition gear it's not it's, it's not, not competition gear yeah. <laughs> yeah that's fair um so we kind of touched on your kind of coming up through the sports and some of that kind of stuff was there a moment or a point in time where you decided like, okay, I'm going to dedicate my life to this. Like I'm going to give it everything I can. I'm going to move up to the 120 plus class. I'm going to squat 1200 pounds. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. Like there, was there a point where that kind of clicked for you and you said, all right, this is like, we're going all the way here. No, d definitely not. No, um, I, I always lifted and trained as hard as I could for football. I always tried to work hard in my classes and it's just those those same niches in my life have just kept going forward. I mean, when when football got over, I just lifted as hard as I could and then worked as hard as I could at my job. And it doesn't I don't look back and feel like there was some inflection point where it's like, all right, I'm going gung ho into this thing. I just kept lifting hard and eating lots of food and drinking chicken shakes and <laughs> got the, without really thinking about it, looking back and being like, oh. 400 pounds and squatting a lot of weight now. Yeah. So it was, you just live a gung ho life is what you're saying. Yeah. All right. I respect <laughs> that. That's awesome. So I want um, to, uh, sorry. Ahead. Um, you'd mentioned tra traveling, uh, like three and a half hours, one way to go train with, uh, Mike Womack, um, to, to learn bench. Do you think that was, do you think he was one of the bigger influences on your, cause obviously you squat a ton, um, you deadlift a ton anyway, but, but your bench is, you know, if you want to look at where you're at versus where everyone else is at, like bench is definitely you're, you're, you're miles above your nearest competitor in the bench. So do you think, uh, Mike was a big role in that or was it just kind of you're playing around with the gear over time? I'd say I have to give an enormous amount of credit to Mike because the things that I do now in my training and with the bench shirt are totally different than what I learned from Mike. But the thing that I learned from Mike was approaching the bench shirt a totally different way than I had before. So, you know, up, up until meeting Mike Womack, I thought, okay, this is a bench shirt and you have to use it exactly this way. Well, then I go down and meet Mike Womack and he says, this is a bench shirt and no, you have to use it this way, which was completely different in a lot of different regards. Um, and so I, it was, it was being around Mike and seeing that like, Oh, okay. He, he did this a lot different than how I thought you were supposed to. So it was opening my eyes to like, there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different tweaks, a lot of different things you can do to where I went back to my lab and was like, okay, this is how everyone in powerlifting does it. This is how Mike does it. What if I do this? What if I do that? And it was just years of going back to the lab and tinkering um, to kind of come up with how I wanted to do it. So, and, so I, how, how I use the shirt now is totally different than how Mike Womack does it. But if I had never spent that time around Mike Womack, I don't think that my eyes would have been opened to trying so many different things out, outside of the box. Right. So kind of related question how many bench shirts do you think you own <laughs> where's your That's spreadsheet always the big collection that? right i do have a spreadsheet on i don't know where it is uh at least 20 probably do you have each use in your bench shirt tracked have you tracked how many times you've used each bench shirt or are we not talking to mike t right now <laughs> um i have not i have not done that uh if i was um I'm very fortunate with my relationship with Titan. So uh, if if I was a lot more restrictive and I only had two, three shirts to work with, I'd probably keep more track of them. But it's like, okay, I found a shirt that works and now it's loose and just order the same one again. Um, right. I'm not as anal as I used to be about tracking everything about the gear. Right. Um, so it's interesting when you're talking about kind of your, your evolution with the bench, um, from, you know, how you were initially taught to meeting Mike to, you know, then again, opening your eyes in a, in a totally different direction. 
What are your thoughts on how equipped is or where equipped lifting is progressing right now? And what, what have you seen from your perspective, obviously at the top of things, um, you know, what do you, what do you think the future of equipped looks like and, and are you happy with the direction that it's going? Um, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I don't, at this point, I don't think it will overtake raw in popularity. No, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I certainly wish that it did. Sometimes I feel like I was at the wrong place at the wrong time with certain things because, uh, the first raw world championship I did was 2012 and I, I won the raw world championship by quite a bit. And then I went to equipped worlds that same year and got sixth place. And the guys that beat me were, uh, I knew they couldn't touch me, especially in the squat for like for raw strength. I knew I could out squat them raw by a lot. And they were bringing right. gear. Um, it was guys like CYC and Victor Testov and Ryan Stinn probably. And, uh, <laughs> and so I, you know, I was like fascinated by it. Like how, how are these guys beat me by so much? I know I'm stronger than them raw. And so from that, like 2012 to 2015 was kind of an inflection point where I started started focusing more of my attention from raw to equipped because I was like, okay, this, this raw stuff, I got that figured out. How do I beat these guys in gear? And then I got to the point where I was beating the guys in gear and being able to win world championships on the equipped side. And kind of when I was going from raw to equipped, the whole world was going to raw. Um, right. So, uh, so, you know, I think it's in a good place now. And again, this isn't a, this isn't a softball to Bryce. There was no prep for this, but I think it's, it's the guys like you that, that I have all the respect in the world for, because it's, it's so tough for someone that's a top world-class raw lifter to just jump in the deep end and go to equipped knowing you can be a top three, top five guy at raw worlds and go to the equipped side and, you wouldn't be top 10 or 15. I mean, it's, that's tough to go from, all right, I'm on top in the world to, I know I'm going to get my, my butt kicked. Um, but over time you figure the gear out I and mean, that, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, obviously you see a lot of equipped lifters jumping to the raw side, but that's because mm-hmm. the, a lot of them have the raw training. But uh, I think, I think that's the biggest holdup for, for equipped to gain popularity because it's such a hard thing. It's such a hard pill to swallow for these new lifters coming out, everyone's starting in raw, the grassroots, local level, everything's raw. So it's such a difficult jump for someone to be a high-level national or high-level world competitor on the equipped side, jump into the deep end and equipped and you know get, get their butts kicked for a little while. Yeah. I, I mean, I think for me, that was like, that was encouraging. I liked going back to that point of being like, shit, I can climb this ladder. You know what I mean? Um, so I think, I think for me, that was kind of a, an encouraging thing. And I I'd felt like I was kind of stalling out a little bit with raw. And I think we're seeing more and more people starting to kind of feel that way. Um, and, and more guys, even just for the sake of experimenting like Eric Willis, um, and some other, some other Canadian lifters, I'm sure it's probably happening, uh, maybe a little bit on the American side. I'm not as in touch with a lot of that stuff, but, uh, it's cool to see the rosters get a little bit longer at a lot of these international meets in terms of, uh, the teams that North American countries are sending, because I know for a long time, it's been pretty, um, not, not without its incredible lifters, but smaller rosters for sure. So we, we each posted, uh, basically just like an open question thing on our, our Instagrams today and, and took some, some questions from, whoever's out there floating around in internet land. Um, some people were like, yeah, just ask him what's up. Um, but <laughs> I think so we've, what's up, Blaine? Yeah. <laughs> what's up? <laughs> we've selected maybe a few of the more, uh, worthwhile questions. So uh, this one I liked was, uh, somebody asked, what are your, what are your favorite top three IPF lifters? Who do you like right now? Um, can we say within the last few years, at least, Yep. Uh, yeah. You can give it I, any qualifications I, you want. I'd say the first one that pops in my mind was uh, Carl Ingvar Christensen, CYC, because um, I, I've surpassed his numbers now, but he was such a clean, perfect lifter. I mean, if he did a squat, you know it was going to be three white lights. If he did a bench, you knew it was going to be three white lights. And there wasn't going to be any controversy, and he was so consistent meet to meet with his lifts. Um, so that's. That's something that at times I wish I could replicate, but I also know 
swinging for the home runs. It's not going to be a consistency game, but um, yeah. it was so so awesome to watch him lift because he was just, I mean, so crisp. Everything's three white lights, eight for nine or nine for nine all the time. Um, who else? Let's see, you know, Brad Gillingham, obviously because of his deadlift, and he's just someone that I looked up to for a very long time for his longevity in the sport. Um, I mean, he. He's pulled 800 pounds, 80-something or 100-something times in competition. <laughs> Crazy. And he was so close um, at the top for for a really long time. Uh, and then, let's see. Uh, it's interesting for me to watch a lot of the Japanese benchers. Um, I don't know how to say the guy's name. The uh, the, the, light, the lightweight lightweight Japanese bencher, raw and equipped. Um, His name's evading me right now. Kodama? Yeah. Yes. Daiki Kodama, yeah. Yeah. He, he's just interesting for me to watch because the Japanese, just like as a culture, I mean, they are they, they excel at the equip benching. So I, I really like watching them because it's a totally different style than, than I kind of use with the shirt. But um, watching the Japanese equip bench pressers, I'd say, is another one. I'll, I'll make sure I don't tell Rhea that she wasn't on your list. <laughs> that, was, that was too easy. And Mayhar will have to deal with it too. <laughs> that was way too easy. I could say that one. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna snipe this next one too because, um, so fishing, pike, bass, or trout? Bass. Bass. Um, Follow up question: What's your favorite bait for trout in Montana? Do you ever fish for trout in Montana? Yeah. Yep. So I I live pretty close to Montana where I'm at in Wyoming, as Ryan knows. Uh, I, I like to throw streamers for trout. I like to fish for big trout, so streamers and swim baits. You fly fisherman? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. <laughs> right. I, don't know, I don't know anything about it. Uh, all right. I haven't gone fishing since I was about 10, I'm sure. <laughs> so what would be your favorite accomplishment to date in the sport? Uh, that one's tough. I guess I take, I get more satisfaction out of the records and the milestones than I do the championships. So the first time I squatted 1100 was a big one for me. The first one, first time I squatted 900 or bench 900. And then um, I think probably the 1,003 pound bench from the Arnold last year, even though it didn't go down as the IPF world record. um, I'd say that was my, my favorite moment. What about uh, your your thought process, or how do you psych yourself up for a big lift? I've seen the I've seen the chalk war paint, I've seen the thigh slaps many a time, um, and the the loud metal and stuff. But is there is there more to that? Is there more under the surface that you're trying to get at when you're psyching yourself up for one of these big things? Not really. Just finding finding the song I like and uh, slapping myself, just getting fired up, getting <laughs> the ammonia. Where did the where did the chalk war paint come from? Um, it's a it's an expression of self that the IPF doesn't like, so I like it. <laughs> All right, beautiful. That's fair. No no magnesium on the face. I think that's correct. <laughs> uh, so this is a good interesting question. Uh, besides a barbell and a rack, uh, what piece of equipment is a must for you to have? For a must, there's n- there's nothing else. Nothing. Um, you, you all kind of hit on that question earlier, but um, with everyone trained in their garage or their home gyms, there was a period when I first moved to Oklahoma City where I just trained with a combo rack and my weights for probably two or three years and didn't notice any detrimental gains. So let me just pivot that then and say, like, so if you were to buy, if you own a rack and a set of weights, what's the third thing you buy? I would say a like a cross functional cable machine. That's I have one of those in my gym, and that's probably the next most important thing I use. But Pack where flies, are you going to curls standing in the middle of it? And, right. Every spoke, so it's got the arms that <laughs> go up and down and in and out, and there's not a single body part on your entire body that you can't extremely effectively. Yeah, you have, you have a nice cable machine. Um, but what about? Where are you going to put your protein shakes if you don't have reverse hyper? Oh, AKA the coffee table. 
<laughs> Valid question. And your um, programs? I mean, they got to go somewhere. You're just tugging at all the heartstrings. And all the <laughs> thoughts, Ryan. Um, what was your What was your hardest plateau during training, and how did you How did you get past that point? Looking back at my competition results over the last few years, you wouldn't think that I've plateaued, but feeling my training numbers for the past five, six years, I mean, it feels like it's been a five or six year plateau. Um, you know, part of it is injuries, but looking back at my training numbers and volume five, six years ago, it's not, it's not any greater than it is now. Um, so I, I would, you know, part of that's, injuries and injury mitigation but i would say it's just experience of learning learning how hard you need to push it in training both intensity and numbers wise and knowing where that sets you up for a meet um but there's no plateaus i don't think there's any magic training twist you can throw in to get you through it um you know certainly certainly there are programming variables that can help you get through but i mean the definition of a plateau is pretty pretty open-ended some people get right. frustrated if they don't put 10 pounds on their bench and in, in two or three weeks um, the stronger you get the longer you train your gains are going to get slower and slower so I, I would just say obsessive dedication nose to the grindstone and just working is the only way to get through yeah and sort of off the back of that, have you have you found that over the years there's there's like very definitive periods of time where you feel you need to or maybe you're more comfortable kind of like redlining it as opposed to times where you're like, okay, we're gonna coast for a while. And how do you kind of decide when those when those are coming about? Or do you program those or do you just kind of feel it out? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um I, I program in deloads, I program in percentages, but sometimes I follow my program about as good as Raya does. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do think there, I do think there's be on here next, something you know. to that. If, uh, you know, if you're programmed for a down week, but you're warming up and things are firing and you feel good, I, I personally think that you have to take advantage of those days. It doesn't always pay off, but, um, you know, the, the longer you train, the more you're in the game, the the less of those days seem to come. So when when you're feeling good and the strength is there, even if it's not on the table for the day, I'm fully in support of getting after it. Yeah, I uh, I remember a, a story that Mike likes to tell about how he kind of did this one off out in the middle of nowhere meet because his buddy was hosting it and wanted him to come compete. And he had had a crappy training cycle and tweaked his back or whatever. And he goes to the meet <clears throat> with no intentions of really doing anything and starts warming up for deadlift and is like, oh shit, okay. And ended up loading it up and, and like taking this big deadlift, which I think to this day is still the, the most he's ever pulled. And he kind of looks back on that day like, you know, if I hadn't put it on the bar that day, you know, at, at what point do you know like, okay, this is the heaviest I'm ever going to lift? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> Did like, does that cross your mind? regularly or are you still just kind of like no there's no way i'm not moving up there's no way i'm not doing more um that's a that's a good question you know i really do think i'm to the point at least in gear or gear especially where i'm not going to lift any more weight than i have in training um but right. it's through me experience learning that okay i don't need to lift this much in training to do this much at the meet so no i don't think i'm done hitting PRs and meets, but I think I'm done hitting PRs and training. Awesome. I want to see more thousand pound benches. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> All right. So one more, uh, kind of in that same vein, um, what would you say is the lowest point in your lifting career so far? And what did you learn from it? I bombing out of the world games in 2017, I think it was it 2017 when last World Games? Yeah, it yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, I'd say that because uh, squats were rough for everybody. They were judging very tough. Um, I got a squat in on my third attempt, 
And I was like, oh, I, I made it. That's all I need. I need this to get this squad in. Um, and then uh, opened pretty heavy in the bench. I think I did like 893, which I think was a world record at the time. Like when I got that bench in, I was like, man, I got a squad in. I got a bench in, and that, that was all I needed to, to win the freaking world games. I was like, I got it in the bag. No one ever bombs on deadlifts, especially me, because I always try to open up so light. Um, had a pretty rough, had a really rough training cycle on my back for deadlifts. Um, really rough. Hurt my back uh, during squats. Didn't feel, back didn't feel good warming up on deadlifts. Um, ended up bombing out on deadlifts. First and only time in my life that I've ever bombed on deadlifts. Uh, I think I opened at 739. Sorry, I keep throwing out the pound numbers for you guys. Opened at yeah, 739. Like, how many kilos is that? <laughs> my uh, my PR at the time was 817. Um, so that, that was for sure the lowest point because I've bombed on squat. I'll bomb on squat again. I've bombed on bench. I'll bomb <laughs> on bench again. But never in a million years that I think I would bomb on, on deadlift. And especially knowing I probably could have pulled like 30, 40 pounds less and still, still won. So to... After after getting through tremendously difficult judging on equipped squat, equipped bench to go bomb on deadlift was uh, that was the lowest point I'd say. So did you learn anything from that experience? You think? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I've always been very conservative on my deadlift openers, so I don't know if I would say that I changed that. Um, in, in training, I've definitely tried to clean clean my lifts up. You know, squatting depth more often cleaner benches and training. Um, it hasn't, hasn't been perfect, but I would say, I would say that. Again, batting for those home runs though, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, I think, uh, yeah, we'll move on to this next one here. So this is a little more topical, a little more recent. Um, but what are your thoughts on the whole removal of world records from the recent Arnold? Um, I'm assuming you have some thoughts and feelings on that. Yeah. Uh, extremely heartbroken and disappointed and pissed off and every, every emotion that you could think of. Um, yeah. You know, the uh, lot of athletes are affected. Um, it, it's frustrating to me because I, I think that there's this battle going on between the IPF and USAPL and they're just taking blows at each other. And it goes back to the drug testing stuff that started a year ago. Mm, or so mm -hmm. I think the last swing by the IPF was this. And I think that the, the lifters were the ones caught in the crossfire here. Um, I think it's kind of ridiculous. If, if the IPF wanted to punish the USAPL, I, I would throw out a fine or fine them or something, you know, to hit the lifters like this is, is tough. Um, so it's, it's pretty disappointing to, uh, you know, a lot of athletes love the Arnold because it's the opportunity to set world records. I'm obviously extremely disappointed about it. I hit a few of them there, but I'm yeah. tr trying to also stay somewhat positive because there's there's probably people that this hurts a lot worse than me. I'm sure there's lifters that maybe it was their first world record, and now that's taken away, and they may, ne may never have another shot to break a world record. Or you know, I, I didn't lose any of my world records to someone else. Um, there's lifters that, that probably broke world records here that um, is now the person that had it before him. So, you know, I'm disappointed and upset that my my numbers went up a lot on my world records. Um, but, yeah, it's every emotion I can think of. Yeah, I think that's, that's very fair, obviously. <clears throat> um, yeah, I think that uh, about wraps it up. Um, so if anybody's looking to find you, Blaine, I'm sure anybody watching this or listening to this has probably already found you. But just in case, uh, where can where can people get a hold of you? I pretty much just use Instagram where I think you can search my name or the Vanilla Gorilla 92 and I'll pop up. Cool. And uh, yeah, I think that about does it for us. So uh, thank you very much for coming on and, and having this chat with us. I think this will hopefully resonate with a lot of people who are interested in equipped lifting and, and who have, uh, you know, there's, there's maybe a, a bit of a void of, of some of this information and to have somebody like yourself on the, on the podcast to chat about these things, I think opens up a lot of, 
information and hopefully a lot of uh, uh, interest in these things. Um, I think you've been a pretty, pretty incredible ambassador for equipped lifting and obviously have, have set the standard to a pretty, uh, pretty incredible height. So thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Appreciate it guys. Awesome. Thanks Blaine. All right. We want to thank you for listening to the equipped bruised and tired podcast. We're going to be available on iTunes, Google play, Stitcher, wherever fine podcasts are found. So make sure to leave your five-star rating if you enjoyed the show and a review as well and or check out our video version of the show on our YouTube channel. If you have any questions for ourselves, guest suggestions or questions for our guests, you can go ahead and contact us at equippedbruisedtired at gmail.com and make sure to do your part to spread the word of the equipped renaissance. We'll see you next time.